Jewish people. We all know that here in Israel we have an external struggle and we have an internal struggle. The external struggle is uh, obvious to all that the world would like to get rid of us. And the internal struggle is also a major, major struggle. Because, again, of different backgrounds, different ideas, uh, different uh, visions that exist for what the Jewish people should look like. So if we start uh, at the time of the year 70, the destruction of the temple, the Roman Empire dominates the world. Now, anyone who lived during the period of time of the Roman Empire was convinced that the Roman Empire was going to last forever. It uh, lasted for 500 years. There was a Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome. Uh, Rome stretched from uh, Persia uh, to the uh, Atlantic. It included uh, France and Romania, which is Roman, much of Central Europe, uh, parts of Germany, England, Ireland, North Africa. It was enormous. Now, the Jews, uh, even before the destruction of the temple, accompanied the Romans wherever they want, went, uh, either as merchants, uh, chandlers, people that supplied food to the army, organized uh, supplies, and uh, there were Jewish communities, therefore, in Europe at the time of the destruction of the temple. Now, the communities were small in population, because the whole world then was small in population. At the time of Julius Caesar, there were 125 million people in the Roman Empire, which uh, today is... Uh, one-tenth of India. And uh, 7% of China. So uh, the Jews uh, were pretty prominent because there were about 6 million Jews in the world then. If you want to put it into perspective, there were about 11, 12 million Chinese in the world then. So the Chinese today are a billion, six hundred million, and we're about fifteen million, can you? Because that was the price of uh, persecution, of assimilation, of exile. And uh, really the Torah promised that to us in advance. The Torah said, Lo mirubchem, I have not chosen you because you are many. You'll be the smallest of all people. I always say that that somehow is a positive thing. Because uh, then every Jew counts, right? If there'd be uh, a billion Jews in the world, nothing would ever happen. Because everybody would say, let Yankel do it. But since there is nobody else, so then everybody has to do their part. Everybody's important. Everybody's on the stage. There's no audience in the Jewish world. So 
the Jews are with the Romans everywhere. But the major uh, centers of Jewish life are in the land of Israel and in Babylonia, in Bovel, in Iraq. Uh, the Jews went to Iraq uh, with the destruction of the first temple. And uh, most of them didn't come back to the land of Israel. When Ezra, we read in the book of Ezra, when Ezra said, uh, we're going back to the land of Israel, he could only rally 42,000 people to go with him. The Levium didn't go with him. The Talmud tells us that he punished the Levium for not coming back. He took away the Maser from them. Uh, the Jews were happy in Babylonia. The first generation of Babylonian Jews uh, bit off their thumbs uh, not to sing the songs of Zion on foreign soil. We wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the song of God on foreign soil? Well, that was the first generation. The second generation already, they didn't bite off their thumbs. The third generation... We read in the Novi Yecheskel. Uh, they came to uh, Yecheskel and they said to him, the leaders of the people, the heads of the Jewish organizations of their time, came to him and they said, listen, we quit. We're going to be, you know, we're Babylonians of the Mosaic persuasion. Forget it. When there's no temple, the, the Jewish, uh, our future is here. Uh, Yechezkel is taken aback by this, that such statements should be made. That evening he has a dream of prophecy, and the Lord, so to speak, appears to him. And uh, God enters into a uh, friendly conversation with him. You know, like, did you have a hard day at the office today? What happened? Who came to see you? And certainly God doesn't have to ask him who came to see him. But, Dibra Torah, And so he says, well, the elders of Israel came to see me today. He said, well, what, what did they want? So they said, we quit. It's going to be like everybody else. So God says, what did you say to them? What was your response? So the Novi admits, he says, Aho Hashem Elohim, God, I tell you, only you know what to answer. I don't know what to answer them. All of this should be vaguely familiar to us. Yeah, so that's always going basis world, you know. That's uh, that's the United States of America today, or France, or England, or uh, Israel. We resent being special, and the more we resent it, the more special we become. So uh, the God said to them, "Koamar." Uh, Emor lahem, say to them as follows, Ko amar shem tzvokos, 
Tell him to forget it. Cholagoyim Beis Yisrael is never going to be. In kilo emlo chaleim b'zoa netuya uvechem oshvucha. I will rule over them with an outstretched hand, and I will pour my anger out against them. And a decade later is the story of Purim and of Homan. And Homan is vikesh larugo la'abedes kola yudi minar v'atzokein taf v'noshim b'yom echod. He doesn't look, you know, he's not going to ask whether you're left or right or charedi uh, or dati leumi or he's not going to, he's not interested. Bells, none of that bothers him. So, uh, After that scare, so there was an increased immigration to the land of Israel, but Babylonia remained a large center of Jewish life and of Torah life. You'll see later the Talmud Bavli is created in uh, Babylonia. Uh, the, the Gemara says on itself, Hashem, the Lord has placed me in places of darkness. That's the Talmud Bavli. The Talmud Bavli is written in a place of darkness. But it became the basic book of the Jewish people. When people uh, say that we're the people of the book, so the, <coughs> they mean the Bible, but that's not the book. The book is really the Talmud. Bible belongs uh, universally today to everyone. The Talmud pretty much still is only ours. So, there's a large Jewish community in Babylonia, and the, uh, after the destruction of the Second Temple, the community becomes larger. You have the rise of Christianity. Uh, eventually, Rome becomes Christian, which is the complete disaster in the Jewish world. And uh, the Byzantine Christians, uh, the Eastern Christians control the land of Israel and they go on a campaign of genocide to destroy the Jewish people in the land of Israel. So that by the year 350, 380, there's uh, very little left of the Jewish community in the land of Israel and it has moved to Babylonia. Babylonia, for some reason, did not become Christian. It remained pagan, Zoroastrian, uh, part of the Persian and Parthian empires. And because of that, the, uh, the Jews, so to speak, were protected. The Jews lived all along the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, they had uh, uh, established... Uh, happy you came because it's going to lower the average age years uh, significantly. And, uh, in my synagogue in Rechavia where I'm the Rav, uh, so we are, Baruch Hashem, a retired and elderly population. When I was in America, so uh, 
the, <clears throat> the last Shabbos that I was in America, I was in the shul uh, where I was uh, 35 to 40 years older than anybody else in the shul, which depressed me. Because I was happy to come back to my shul where I'm relatively a young man. Right? <laughs> so the... Uh, <clears throat> The, the uh, Jews in Babylonia became the center of Jewish life. But there were Jews scattered throughout the Mediterranean basin and uh, North Africa, Libya, Egypt, there's a very large Jewish community in Alexandria, uh, in Greece, Turkey, uh, and in Rome itself. Rome had a very significant Jewish population, mostly freed slaves. If, if you ever visit Rome and you see the Colosseum, the Colosseum was built by 70,000 Jewish slaves that the Emperor Vespasian brought back from uh, the uh, destruction of the temple. Tens of thousands of them died in the construction of that edifice. It's really a place, you know, people say Kaddish and in Auschwitz and other places, you could say Kaddish in the, in the Colosseum as well. But there was a large Jewish community in Rome, and it was an influential community. But the center of Jewish life was Babylonia. In Babylonia was the Talmud, and then after the Talmud was the period of the uh, Savaroyim, and then the period of the Gaonim. Uh, in Babylonia, the Jews had autonomy. They had their own state within a state. And they had uh, someone who was called the Reish Gelusa, the head of the exile, the exilarch. And he was descended from the house of David. He was the pretender to the throne of David. And he had temporal power. He could execute people. He could incarcerate people. Side by side, and this is, I think, important to note because it exists in our world today. Side by side with this, so to speak, uh, government of the Jews, uh, there was a uh, spiritual government, which were the Gaonim, the Russia Yeshiva. There were two main Yeshiva in Bovel, one in Sura and one in Pumpadita. And the head of the Yeshiva was had the title of Gaon. So the rule was that uh, Gon was in charge of all the spiritual matters and the Rejigaluta was in charge of all non-spiritual matters. And then they agreed to disagree what was called spiritual and non-spiritual. The famous uh, uh, anecdote of Yisrael Salanter that when he got married he told his wife that all Milei all matters of heaven, I'll decide. And everything to do with running the house and everything on you, you decide, right? And then he said, we spent 30 years arguing what was Milit Ishmaya and Milit right? So here, so it depended on the personalities. Sometimes you had a Rej Galusa that was pious and wonderful. You had a Gon that was not aggressive, that was a person of peace. So everything worked. Sometimes you had two very strong people who didn't give in to each other. And therefore we have a history of putting people into Cherem, the Gon put somebody into Cherem, and they put the Gon into Cherem. It was, you know, it was Jewish to the end. 
But the Gaonim had great influence and great sway, and Babylonia controlled the entire Jewish exile. And not only in matters of halacha, but in matters of Jewish policy as well. Now, the problem was that the Jews in the exile now were living mainly in Christian countries, and the Babylonians were not living in Christian countries. Therefore, it was hard for them to understand what the problems were. Just as today, it's, you know, uh, it's difficult to have... uh, I have a Talmud of mine that's in a a very small uh, community in one of the western states of the United States. And he uh, writes to me often with questions, etc. And I've always told him, I said, you know, it's very difficult if you're sitting near Shalim to Paskin, what should be in Boulder, Colorado. Because it's, it's a different world. And the circumstances are different. One of the uh, at a Torah Masori convention uh, a few years ago, one of the great uh, scholars of B'nai Brak was a guest of honor. was a guest. And uh, they had a question and answer session with him. And one of the questions that the uh, teachers posed was, is it, uh, what's your opinion whether or not the teacher, the Rebbe, should play ball with the students? Well, he couldn't get over the fact that they were playing ball, period, right? He couldn't understand that because in B'nai Barak, nobody played ball. So, therefore, it becomes irrelevant to the issue. Now, the Jews in Babylonia uh, attempted, the Gonim especially, uh, uh, they demanded to be supported by the communities, just as we see today in Yeshivas and Eretz Israel are entitled to support from Jews all over the world. And uh, there was a uh, an incident in the ninth century when uh, four great Russian yeshiva uh, from Babylonia were uh, kidnapped by pirates. They were traveling to Western Europe to collect money, and they were kidnapped by pirates. And the uh, pirates held them for ransom. And when they knew they had Jews for ransom, the ransom was much higher because they knew that Jews would pay. It's an old tactic. I mean, you shouldn't think that Gilad Shalit is something new in the Jewish world. The Maran Merottenberg in the 13th century was held for ransom for 13 years. He refused to be ransomed because he said that they'll only do it again, which undoubtedly they would have and he died in captivity and then they would not release his body which lay again for many years until there was a Jew in Mainz that uh, succumbed and ransomed if you visit the Jewish cemetery in Mainz the Marama Rottenberg and the man that ransomed the body are buried next to each other so these four rabbis are uh, kidnapped so one was ransomed by the Jewish community of Kairouan in Morocco. One was ransomed by the Jewish community of Bari in Italy. 
Uh, one was ransomed by a Jewish community in Spain, and the fourth one in, by France, and that's how the Torah came to Western Europe. Because each of them conditioned the ransom on the fact that the, the rabbi would stay and be the rabbi in their community, and that, that was the condition of being ransomed. We have such a story in our family is that my grandfather, who uh, was here in Yerushalayim just before the First World War, and he was sent from Yerushalayim to the United States to uh, uh, collect money. And the war broke out, and then he was stuck there, and then on top of it all, uh, Turkey entered the war, and Turkey entered the war against the United States. So he was an enemy alien, because he was a Turkish citizen somehow. And uh, they interned him in jail as an enemy alien. And the Jews in uh, South Chicago, Illinois, heard that there's a Yerushalmi rabbi sitting in jail. So they put on all the pressure they could, and they ransomed him. They, they got him out, but on the condition that they, he would stay in South Chicago and be their rabbi. And that's how he came to Chicago. So uh, there are lots of stories, as, you know, how it spreads, unlikely things. So the Jews uh, now in Morocco, uh, so Rabbeinu Hushiel in Chiron and later in Fez built a tremendous Torah center. And in Spain, Jews came to Spain and uh, they came with the Muslims. See, the big change in all of this is that in the 7th and 8th centuries the Muslims came and conquered much of the Middle East almost conquered Europe they were turned away at the gates of Vienna but uh, had they won Europe Europe may end up being Muslim anyway but it would have been Muslim a lot earlier and so therefore uh, the uh, Muslims uh, had a strange relationship with the Jews, at least at the onset. Part of the relationship was that they needed the Jews. And therefore, when the Muslims crossed into Spain, the Jews came with them. And Jews served in very high offices in Spain. But Shmuel Anogid, the famous uh, commentator to the Talmud, uh, was a general in the Spanish army. And he was a prime minister. It would be like I would tell you, you know, uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik was chief of staff of the American army. So to, the, to us, these things are unthinkable. But in Spain, uh, they were, uh, it was common. I mean, their Barbanel ends up being the treasurer of Spain. So uh, you had uh, now different pockets of the Jewish exile. And Babylonia declined vis-a-vis Spain and North Africa. Then there were another element of Jews, probably also from Babylonia, who went up the Adriatic, went through the Balkans, and came to France. And they lived in two places in France, in Provence, which is near the Spanish border. So that's a a different group completely, Provençal Jews, are not Ashkenazim, they're not Svardim, they're Provençal. 
But the other Jews came to the Ile de France, to uh, near, not far from Paris, uh, Troy, Troyes, uh, the Champagne area, and that's where Rashi uh, came. And then there was another element that came already to the Rhineland, to spires, the worms, and the mines. The, right now, the the period of time that we commemorate is the period of time when the Crusaders destroyed the, the Jewish communities. Over there, there was Rabbeinu Gershom, or Agola, and Rabbeinu Gershom made a large yeshiva in Mainz. Large, I mean, he had a hundred students. You know, like numbers at the time of Rashi, there probably were no more than 5,000 Ashkenazic Jews in the world. And because they all intermarried with each other, you're talking three, four hundred families. Well, that's why, uh, till today, Ashkenazic Jews have a very small DNA base, which can sometimes cause genetic problems, because we're a very small group that always intermarried with each other. And therefore, uh, the mutations became harmful after a period of time. So you have now this group of Jews in France and the Rhineland developed differently than the Jews in Spain, who developed differently than the Jews in Morocco, who developed differently than the Jews in Babylonia, in Iraq yet. And so this is the beginning of the split between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Sephardim was the name that Jews used for Spain. Ashkenaz was the name that the Jews used for Germany and uh, France and uh, they had different outlooks on life completely different because the uh, those who lived under Muslim domination uh, the Muslims then until the 1500s the Muslims were the most progressive civilization the, the Christians were uh, very very uh, backward primitive uh, so the, under the Muslims, the Jews became doctors, they became uh, philosophers, they became poets, uh, all sorts of things uh, that existed that were part of their life. And the Ashkenazim, none of that happened. The Ashkenazim were just meat and potatoes. It was just the uh, Torah, Torah, Torah. Because there was n- absolutely no incentive to be like your Christian neighbor who was unlettered, illiterate, a boor. And the church then was very, very primitive. So there was a great discussion whether or not Christianity is to be considered a Zora or not, which made tremendous differences in halacha, what we would consider it. Now the Svardim, and the Rambam says so, the halacha, the Svardim said that the Christianity is a Zora concept of the Trinity, the concept of uh, uh, the, the Son of God, uh, all of those things made it Avodazor. Well, if it was Avodazor, you couldn't do business with them. It would be very hard to uh, somehow uh, live in that society. The Ashkenazim, it's a, you can see it in uh, Tosfus and Masechus Avodazor. Tosfus already says uh, that it's not Avodazor. Christianity is what they call shituf. Shituf is uh, monotheism plus something. And non-Jews are uh, 
not held accountable for shituf. Jews are, but not non-Jews. And therefore, it's, they're not Ode Avodah So there's a very fundamental difference in the view of uh, Christianity. And uh, for a long period of time, the Sephardim felt themselves superior to the Ashkenazim because of their breadth of knowledge, because of the wealth they had. The golden age of Spain was a golden age. It was interrupted by periods of time of, of Islamic fundamentalism, which comes and goes in waves. Every 70, 100 years you get it. And so therefore, for instance, there were the Almohads who drove the Rambam and his family out of Cordova uh, and persecuted the Jews. But after 70 years, they declined and more moderate Muslims came to rule again. But the Jews uh, in Spain felt themselves to be... Uh, uh, I think the word they used was grandees. They were special, aristocratic. And the Ashkenazim were, uh, you know, they looked down upon them. The Ashkenazim, on the other hand, uh, said uh, the problem with the Sephardim is they're too cultured. They, uh, you know, they deal uh, with philosophy and they deal with uh, sciences and doctors, etc. And we're not interested in that. We're interested only in Torah. And uh, we don't want to mix with the population. We don't want to be a duke. We don't want to be a king. We don't want to be a prime minister. That's not us. So that was a basic difference in outlook. And it's a difference in outlook that exists today, uh, not between Svardim and Ashkenazim, but at least an outlook that exists within the Jewish world itself. Are we part of the world or not? Are we supposed to be part of the world, right? Are we supposed to be uh, Joe Lieberman, or are we supposed to be New Square? The concept of yeshiva as we know it today was unknown then. You see, yeshivas then meant that you came and you studied with the rabbis. You know, it wasn't a formal... But it, in, so in the, in the yeshiva in Mainz was a formal yeshiva. That was destroyed in the Crusades. Rashi did not have a formal yeshiva. People came and studied with him, his, his family, etc. And that was the system. Amongst the Svardim, that was also the system. But the Rambam never went to yeshiva. The Rambam studied with his father. Now, there were hundreds of people who came and studied with the Rambam privately over his entire lifetime. But the institutionalized yeshiva, that was, as we know it today, is a modern invention. It's a 19th century invention of Alosian. So when the, when the Talmud says that Avram Avinu had a yeshiva, it was not the base medrash that you think of today. Yes? Pardon? Surah Pumpadisa were the Babylonian yeshivas were traditional yeshivas, but also not the same way that they are today. They were, uh, I mean, the, the great yeshiva of Rav, which was the main yeshiva in Babylonia, had 1,200 students. Well, you know, the mirror uh, that's, uh, you know, that, 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 that the mirror has four times as many here in Yerushalayim. And the yeshiva university has four, you know, like we're talking about a different time. Because the yeshivas then were really completely elitist. They were not made for the masses. 
the masses had a yarchikala. They came uh, twice a year to learn Torah, and so then tens of thousands came. But as far as yeshivas were concerned, that was cut out for the elitists. Everybody else went and worked and made a living. Now, the same thing was true in Valozhin. Valozhin also was 250, 350 students. It was elitist. But in today's world, our world today, if you don't go to yeshiva, God forbid you're not going to be a Shomer Shabbos. So it's a different purpose today. It's not the... Uh, it's not the... It, so part of the problem that we have today is that we have an elitist curriculum for the masses, which does not always work for everybody. So when you talk about children at risk and and the shira and all of that, that's a product of the fact that you're serving, you know, uh, a very uh, gourmet meal to people that want to eat a hamburger. So yeah, so th- these exiles uh, diverged in many, many ways. And... Uh, What happened is that the exile from Spain, you know, and the, uh, the Inquisition and the uh, Jews being driven out of Spain, that reversed the roles completely in the Jewish world. Uh, to the Spanish Jews, to the Sephardim, uh, that was the Holocaust. It completely destroyed them. And uh, the fact that 200, 250,000 Spanish Jews converted to Christianity was a, uh, a, a blow that uh, no one could imagine. And then the rest of them scattered, right? They scattered all over the Middle East, but they scattered as far as, uh, as Lithuania. There were many... Uh, the Svartim that became Ashkenized. Here we see for the first time that when Svartim and Ashkenazim meet, the Svartim become Ashkenized. The Ashkenazim don't become Svartisized. So you'll take a look today, the Russian Yeshiva of the Svartim, with the exception of the Rishon Letzio and the Revavadya, you know, when, he, uh, when he's uh, holding court. So they dress like Svartim. But all the Sephardic Rosh Yeshiva have got the black frock with the two buttons in the back and the black Hamburg and, you know, and they're, why? Why don't they go with the turban? I mean, why is the turban less holy than the Hamburg? But that's a cultural thing. It's a, an amazing cultural thing. And most of the Sephardic Yeshivas today, here in Israel, uh, have the Ashkenazic curriculum. Well, I, I, yeah, it's a big generalization. There's a truth in it, but it's not, uh, you know, like all generalizations. Uh, the Svardim looked at the Talmud. They were more interested in the forest than the trees. They're not interested in every line. What's, you know, like, I mean, if you look in the Rambam, you look in the, the Meiri, you look in the, the Ritzvah, etc. They're interested in the, the general picture. Does the Ashkenazim are interested in the trees? You know, why do they use this word? Oh, this word here, and they, you know, we use the word there, and then all of a sudden. So many times you never see the forest for the trees. 
but on the other hand, many times you don't see the trees for the forest. So, it's it, it, but it's a difference in outlook. It's always been a difference in outlook. Also, in our time, the Svardim became much more kabbalistically oriented than the Ashkenazim. So, uh, the Kabbalah has made a uh, big comeback in our time, helped by Madonna and others. <laughs> But this uh, this idea of uh, of mysticism, etc., has uh, has had much greater sway in the uh, Sephardic world than in the Ashkenazic world. The Ashkenazic world it translated itself into Hasidut, but Hasidut is nowhere near the mysticism that exists in the Sephardic world. So those are differences today uh, but uh, it's just a different world view now the Ashkenazim for instance justified their world view by the fact that the Sephardim were thrown out of Spain so they said you know why they were thrown out of Spain because they were treasurers because they knew Spanish because of the fact they studied philosophy because in, in other words all the things that the Sephardim prided themselves on the Ashkenazim said, well, look, you see? See what happened? We told you, you know, like you're Kechola Goyim, basically. You wanted to be a Spaniard, so you got 200,000 Goyim out of it. Well, that was overstated because in 1648 and 1649, the Jews kept on moving uh, eastward. They were expelled from France, they were expelled from England, and they moved to Germany. Uh, and Germany was always terribly anti-Semitic. I mean, Hitler had very fertile ground, and still is. And uh, there was the Black Death, plagues. So everything was the fault of the Jews, like today, you know. Everything is the fault of the Jews. Jews poisoned the wells. There was a an imam in Cairo that said that the uh, swine flu was uh, the Jews did it. AIDS, AIDS. AIDS you know, all of these things. There's a there's an imam. I wrote an article for my newsletter, which all of you should get. That uh, uh, Starbucks coffee has the picture of a woman as its logo. And the woman is the goddess of coffee. This imam in Cairo said that it's Queen Esther. <laughs> and that this is how the Jew... And he said, how could it be that there's a Starbucks in Mecca? And she's giving them an eye in her eye all the time, right? And he said, we have to boycott the Starbucks and get it out of the Muslim world. So, you know... The world is nuts. The only, that doesn't make it less dangerous, but it certainly is nuts. It's crazy. But they can't have Starbucks here because uh, Vysotsky and Elite don't want it here. That's why. <laughs> Anyhow. Once the Spanish Jews got to Germany, they didn't bring in... No, so they became Ashkenazis. The uh, Torah Tmima, Rabor Halevi Epstein, 
uh, writes that his family's original name was Ben Benisti, and that they were Sephardim. And in the exile from Spain, they traveled eastward, and they came to the German city of Epstein. And that's where they took the name Epstein. And he says, anybody that's an Epstein and is a Levy is a Sephardi. Even though his father is the great Roman Litte. And uh, a lot of the Lithuanian Jews uh, were originally Sephardic. But they became Ashkenized. And one of the great Rabbonim in Litte before the war, his last name was Don Yichye. So he certainly was Sephardic. But uh, he, he, he was Yiddish, and you know, and he was, he was a literature. That's it. So that's a, a phenomena that occurred. Now, part of the uh, uh, idea of Shas, for instance, here in Israel, is to attempt to reverse that. That's Rebbe Vadya's, uh dream. That's uh, their slogan is Lahazira Torah Leoshna. We want to be Svartim. We don't want to be Ashkenazi. Because, again, when the great Svartic immigration took place in the 1950s, the uh, policy of the government was to Ashkenaze them and secularize them. And uh, that's why, for instance, they get a half a million votes in the elections, is because there's a resentment against that. So it's a a difficult thing. Now, the Jews moved east, so they moved into Poland. They were invited into Poland. The kings of Poland in the 13th and 14th century invited the Jews to come to develop the country. There was a golden age in Poland also for about 350 years. The uh, Meshachochma in the... <clears throat> in Parsifal, has a review of the exiles of the Jewish people. He said every exile starts out good. The first few hundred years is good. Until the Jews become so enmeshed in the country and so secure and so convinced that that's their home, so then the Lord uproots them to show them he says there a prophetic uh, statement he said hoy homri mal berlin shazeu yerushalayim woe to those that say that berlin so today we can we know that berlin is not jerusalem but there are other places in the world that you could substitute the name who said that the meshachmar and mayor simcha kohen of dvinsk the Orsameach. They said that about Poland also. Poland? Yeah, so the Poland was... Uh, so for 350 years they were in great shape. And they had also an autonomous government. They had Vlad Arbarotsos. They uh, That included Poland and Lithuania and Belarus and Volhynia. And the Jews governed themselves. They had their own independent court system, which also had powers. And uh, the Jews were very comfortable. And then in 1648, there was a rebellion by a Ukrainian nationalist by the name of Bogdan Khmelyanitsky. And uh, that rebellion killed 200,000 Jews, which at that time 
was the Holocaust. And therefore all the air went out of the Ashkenazic tires, so to speak. Because here, they were only Torah. They weren't philosophers. They weren't, look what happened to them also. And then all of this is compounded when a few years later you have the uh, false Messiah, Shabzai Tzvi, which at least 30% of the Jewish world believed in him, including many great rabbis. And then he bankrupted. Uh, so then, you know, like, that's the bottom, right? So now what do you do? Jews always felt, well, you know, Mashiach will come and save us. Now, you know, uh, who believes in Mashiach anymore? And we see in our time, you know, that Mashiach, uh, I don't think he can come because he's, we've left too many problems for him to solve. Why should he come? We also see the power of uh, of, uh, of, of uh, false messianism and what it does. So, therefore, there now had to be different answers. People looked for different answers. So, you had a combination of the Western Enlightenment, beginning in the 1700s. So, the Enlightenment said. Man can solve all of his own problems. The solution to all problems is education. Religion is a hindrance. Religion is superstition. And uh, human values, that's, that's what we need. Now, the Enlightenment did many great things. It created the United States of America. It certainly was instrumental in the French Revolution, which, uh, about which there are mixed uh, reviews. Many of the ideas of the Enlightenment are enormously positive. But the general tone of the Enlightenment uh, from the time that it came into being till today, uh, the uh, condition of uh, the human race has declined enormously instead of being improved. In the 20th century, it cost 150 million lives by war and government action all in the name of making a better world. And so therefore, you had now the growth in Ashkenazic Jewry. Sephardic Jewry was uh, spared all of these things. Sephardic Jewry didn't have the revolution of Hasidus. It didn't have uh, Haskalah. It really didn't have Zionism. All of these things, the Sephardic Jewry was out of the picture. To a great extent, it didn't have, it had the, the, uh, the Jews of Greece suffered in the Holocaust, uh, Salonika and other places. But basically speaking, it did not suffer in the Second World War the way Ashkenazic Jewry did. But Ashkenazic Jewry is racked by all of these turmoil, uh, these events of turmoil that uh, that fall upon them. And therefore, all sorts of different solutions come. Uh, reform, for instance, in Germany, reform said exactly what was said to the Novi Yecheskel. We quit. There's no Messiah. He turned out to be a faker. 
the goyim hate us and want to kill us. So therefore, we have to become Germans. If we're Germans, nobody will hate us. And therefore, instead of having uh, Saturday as the day of rest, Sunday is the day of rest, because everybody in Germany is Sunday. And who needs Hebrew? We have German. And forget about Zion in Jerusalem. You know, we're here, uh, we're staying in Germany. Oh, Reform today is far different than what reform was. The original reform is gone, and the original reform Jews have no descendants. They just don't exist. Reform that we see today are remnants of descendants of Ashkenazic Jews in the United States who acculturated. And reform uh, is going two different directions at the same time. On one hand, it has become much more traditional. <coughs> Excuse me. And on the other hand, it's, uh, they drive the truck over the cliff. With all due respect, the main problem in the Jewish world is not gay marriage. That's not the issue that will make or break us. And uh, so reform was one answer. In amongst the uh, Eastern European Jews, Hasidus was another answer. Hasidus created a world. Uh, it said, in effect, this is not the real world that we live in. I mean, the Balatanya says it in the Shara Yichud Emuna in the first chapter. He says that. Uh, the world that we think is real is but a dream. You know, many times you get up in the morning and you remember something that you dreamt and you don't remember whether it was real or did that actually happen or did I dream it. Chicago Cubs won the pennant. So uh, that... Uh, so this world was created, you know, with... Uh, Loyalty to the tzaddik, who became a, a rebbe, uh, part of a group, uh, emphasis on prayer, uh, the removal of elitism, uh, less of an emphasis on scholarship and more of an emphasis on prayer and good deeds and com- communal life. So that was the Chassidus uh, is the greatest revolution within the boundaries of halacha that in Jewish history. And I would say today uh, most of the Jewish world is Hasidic or certainly influenced by Hasidicism. <coughs> so that was one answer. Another answer, right? So we're not dealing with this. This world doesn't count. Forget it. <coughs> Then uh, you had the Haskalah, uh, the uh, secularization of the Jewish people, who said, in effect, that uh, uh, we don't want to be reformed, but on the other hand, how can you live in Russia and not speak Russian? How can you live in Russia and not listen to Tchaikovsky? How can you listen to be in Russia and not be part of Russia? And the reason they hate us is because we're separate, but if we were only part of them, None of this made an impression on the Tsar, but it made an impression within the Jewish people. Very long, lasting impression. 
And then you have the rise of secular Zionism, in which Herzl proclaimed uh, that the problem of anti-Semitism was due to the fact that the Jews did not have a nation, they did not have a flag, they didn't have an anthem. But if we had a flag and an anthem in the, in the country, so nobody would hate us, right? He said we'd be like Guatemala. Nobody hates Guatemala. So, uh, thank God we have a flag and an anthem and a nation. And, you know. But uh, we're not like Guatemala, right? We certainly are not like Guatemala. But that, again, we're looking back with perfect hindsight. But at the time, uh, it was the, these alternates were uh, very, very attractive. But you also had some, like, enormous, amazing yeshivas, right? Not, the, not enormous. Amazing, yes. Not enormous. Now, Lublin, for instance, was not built till 1929. It lasted exactly 10 years. It had 400 students out of 3.5 million Jews in Poland. So you would think, you know, and again, there has never been the numbers that that ex, that in the yeshiva world that exists today in the Jewish world. Uh, that, the, in terms of numbers, we've never had the numbers that we have now. We have at least uh, between the United States and Israel probably fifty thousand, sixty thousand. There never been such numbers. I'm not, I'm not speaking about quality. I'm not speaking about the other, but numbers. And so we live in a special time, but it's a time of enormous change, and you cannot really link it back to anything. Asura Shneira didn't start till 1923, and she started against the opposition of most of the rabbis. And the Chavetz Chaim and the Ger Rebbe saved her. The Ger Rebbe wrote them, he said, that the, the father and the son come Friday night to my tish, and the daughter goes to the theater. He said, so how will we build the Jewish people? But you have pockets of resistance to that today as well, right? In many, uh, she has permission to leave. <laughs> Many places, you know, still the women are uh, are not are not supposed to study this or this or this or this or this. But uh, basically, I mean, the greatest revolution in the Jewish world, I think, within the Jewish world in the last century, has been women's education. The complete change of role, <coughs> and, and enormous difference. So uh, all of this uh, stems from. Uh, Pressures that did not apply equally to all sections of Jewry at the same time. So if you were in Ethiopia, so you were still in the 15th century. And if you were in Yemen, so then, you know, you have classic pictures how they used to learn in Yemen. There was one book, and everybody stood around, so somebody learned how to read upside down, and somebody learned how to read from the right and from the left. And it's, you know, so, and that is completely different you know, than, uh, you know, our world today. So it's an enormous adjustment. And we're still in the process of adjusting. And because of the fact that many times we have fantasies of what the past was, and, you know, 
one of the great fantasies is that everything in Eastern Europe was great and that it got ruined in America and in Israel. When the truth of the matter is, everything got ruined there. We were in much better shape here than we were there. I'm talking about religiously speaking. 70% of all Jewish children in Poland in 1935 were registered in non-Jewish schools. And the largest parties, political Jewish political parties in Eastern Europe between the wars were the uh, Bund, which was bitterly anti-religious, the General Zionist, which was generally anti-religious, and then the official communists and socialists. So, the United States today is... Now, the Jews aren't... You know, the Jews believe that uh, God wanted them to be Democrats. Uh, but that's a... Uh, you know, it's a... Uh, it's part of the general American uh, milieu. It's not particularly uh, preached as a Jewish thing. And... Uh, Jews in the United States feel themselves very secure, even though there are incidents that occur all the time. Nevertheless, they still feel themselves very secure. And we've uh, accomplished enormous things in the United States. There's never been such a blessed exile. Uh, and the Torah world has built itself in the United States to an extent that no one could have imagined. I mean, when I was uh, young growing up and in the yeshiva, I mean, no one imagined any of this. I went, I became a lawyer because it was obvious to me that there was never going to be an Orthodox uh, synagogue left in Chicago to be a rabbi in. And I didn't then know the secret that somebody would pay me to marry their daughter. So, uh, you know, so I had to make a living. But all of that has changed, right? The world has changed. And, uh, in Chicago today, uh, many of the conservative synagogues have turned Orthodox or have Orthodox minyanim in the basement that are just waiting to take it over. So uh, America is a, a story of success. But to say that the future of the Jewish people lies in the United States of America, I don't think that that is really an accurate statement. It doesn't mean that America should be abandoned. Well, people say, oh, yeah, you know, let's say uh, what, two million American Jews would arrive here. So that two million American Jews would be the cream of American Jewry. That would mean that you probably condemn the rest of them to stay to, uh, to complete assimilation and intermarriage. So it's very difficult. Uh, you know, the Jewish problems don't never have an easy answer. There are no uh, pat solutions to the problem. But uh, there's no question that uh, the immigration of 100,000 religious Jews from the United States to Israel would help the state of Israel enormously. And it would help the 100,000, would help the state of Israel enormously because they could use an American viewpoint in many, many respects. But that's our, uh, that's our story, and uh, my hour is up, and I want to thank you all for coming. Be well and have... Uh, Good month and a good holiday.
There's uh, breakfast coming in. In a minute. Everyone's taking notes. I don't know where I missed it. After the score wrap, they went to France. Now, there were Jews there in those countries, and how did they get there, though? They came with the Romans. Aha, they came. They came with the Romans, so how did they become Ashkenazim if the rabbis were Sparadim? How did that Be- Because basically what happened is that after